You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It was August of 2013. It was Shark Week, and millions of people were glued to their television sets for the viewing frenzy that the Discovery Network uses to lure shark-loving chums together. But this time, according to their special, Megalodon, the monster shark lives, there was something new in the water, or rather, something old, something ancient and enormous. Following the incident, a search and recovery effort was launched. Initially, it was believed that the only creature large enough to down the fishing vessel would be a whale breaching over the top of the boat. But the wreckage suggested otherwise. What the South African officials discovered was unexpected. Officials had brought in an expert to determine what could have killed the people on that boat. I am a marine biologist with a focus on sharks. I often get called in when strange events have happened in the ocean, even when that event's very hard to describe. The long story short of it is, I'm usually the first guy to get called when something strange is happening out in the seas. The impact of the vessel is massive. It's much more substantial than I thought it would be. You see, whales, in the rare instances they have collided with boats, end up reaching on top of the boat. But it's clear the vessel was rammed from underneath. So this wasn't a whale? No, absolutely not. It sounds to me like whatever did attack their boat did so intentionally, which is further evidence this was no whale. And when the audio is cleaned up, what you hear is chilling. Could it have been a great white? Not your typical great white, no. And what is it? I think that whatever did this is a very large predator, maybe even larger than anything we've ever seen in our lifetime before. quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. There's a new summer movie coming out soon called The Meg, and it's based on a novel by Steve Alton. I enjoy monster movies, and the film looks like a lot of fun, but it reminded me of this 2013 fiasco of the fake Megalodon documentary. Or I guess that would be mockumentary if so many people hadn't been fooled into believing it was real. There was a large outcry from the science community about the misinformation, but Discovery followed it with a 2014 production called Megalodon, The New Evidence. Discovery continued to add their fake content by producing a documentary about an anaconda eating a human alive, but thankfully, that didn't actually happen on the show. There's a long history of giant snake legends along these lines. You can go back to episode 103 with John Murphy for more about that topic. But in January 2015... Discovery promised it was done with these fakeumentaries. Though if you're going to pretend some extinct animal is real, I can certainly see the appeal of hyping Megalodon for Shark Week. This animal had approximately 40,000 pounds of bite force, which is significantly stronger than the estimated bite force of a Tyrannosaurus rex, for example. It had 
more than 260 teeth arranged in five rows, replacing damaged teeth throughout its life with huge, sharp, fresh ones. It could bite a small whale in half with one go. And not only was its bite force stronger than T-Rex, but it was also stronger than that of Mosasaurus, the giant Mesozoic marine reptile made famous by Jurassic World. Megalodon's swim speed has been estimated to be twice that of a great white shark. And did we mention it's big? It could reach lengths of over 60 feet, making it so large that even a baby Megalodon was as big as a modern great white shark. In short, Megalodon was an astonishingly efficient killing machine, and there is nothing alive like it today, including Megalodon. So, we can say with a lot of confidence that Megalodons are extinct. And while the deep ocean may hide many exciting and creepy animals in its dark depths, there's basically no chance that one of those is a relict population of Megalodon. Yet, I've no problem with an obviously fictional movie about these amazing animals. More than that, speaking for Team Smith, we're looking forward to this new movie, The Meg. But what I do have a problem with is these fake humanities like Megalodon the Monster Shark Lives or the two mermaid movies presented on a station that girds itself in the smock of science, but instead makes a mockery of it and confuses the public, which is already besieged by nonsense. Will the Discovery Network stay true to its stated goal of avoiding fake content? Well, its child company, Animal Planet, just closed out Finding Bigfoot with its 100th episode. So I guess the gold rush of reality TV was still going on for a bit. Hey, at least they didn't do a crossover with Naked and Afraid. Though I'm sure that the nude Bigfoot hunters out there would be delighted to see their subculture catching more sunlight. Monster Dog. I am Dr. Craig McLean. I'm currently the executive director of Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, which is a marine lab on the Gulf of Mexico coast. I am also a deep-sea biologist and have spent probably the better part of a couple of decades exploring the deep oceans. Um, a lot of the research in my lab also focuses on the body size of marine animals and why they get to be the size that they are, how their body size differs between oceans or in different regions of the oceans. We, we asked you on because, um, really, honestly, since we started this show about 10 years ago, uh, we've talked about a lot of different monsters and we try to use monsters as a springboard to talk about science topics. And there's a recurring idea that maybe uh, this giant shark megalodon is still out there. Uh, and, and now, we're very skeptical of that for a lot of reasons. We want to talk a little bit about that. But when we were trying to find a megalodon expert, it, it, uh, it's, it's such an interesting mix of uh, paleontology and current shark science. It was It was... We didn't really know who to contact, and your your name came up uh, after you contributed to, to some articles about this topic. So, but yeah, how did you get involved with sharks, though? How did you get interested in sharks in particular? I have a really perhaps perhaps unhealthy obsession with the size of things, like roadside attractions. You know, like the world's largest ball of yarn. Um, if you look <laughs> at my Instagram account, there's currently I've been doing a series for a while called Craig with Big Things. And it's like you know. Uh, you, you know, massive rocking chairs or, you know, 40 foot tall fire hydrant statues. Um, I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> I remember growing up as a kid, like my mother had a, one of those like tiny, um, skating rinks or skating ponds of figurines and stuff like that that would go underneath a Christmas tree. And I was like really fascinated by these like little miniature people for some reason. And so I don't know, somehow I've managed to, to, you know, um, turn this into a job nice <laughs> this will actually pay me for so um so my phd was actually working on why you know contrary to popular belief a lot of um a lot of people believe that most deep sea animals are large like the giant squid or the giant isopod but in actuality a lot of deep sea animals are miniaturized versions of of what they would be in shallow water so you could take take, you know, most snails, um, like along the coast or, you know, the ones you would find on the beach or it could be, you know, anywhere from the size of your thumb to, you know, at the larger size, the large, the size of, of, um, your fist, but in the deep oceans, most of them, you know, are often microscopic. 
And so one of the reasons, so one of the things I did for my PhD was outside of measuring 12,000 tiny deep sea snails um, is to try to figure out why they were so small. And then since then, we, my lab and, and students with me have tackled a whole variety of, you know, what do we know about the actual sizes of animals? You know, so how big does a whale shark get to why do whale sharks get so big? Um, and that's sort of, I mean, you know, and so I've had a, a couple of students who've worked on Megalodon, um, you know, looking at Megalodon patterns through time of how big or did they shrink or increase in size through time? And so, I don't know, it's a, some of it is academic interest and some of it is just pure interest myself. And I've sort of become the go-to for a lot of people on, you know, like, oh, you know, who would know about this body size? It'd be Craig. And so I have the tendency to people sort of bring these kinds of things to me. No, you can't tease us like that, though. Why were the snails so small? Was it sexual selection or what was actually? No, uh, well, some of it is like food limitation. But, um, you know, there's less food in the deep oceans because there's no because the lack of sunlight precludes photosynthesis. So you don't get like a base of a food chain. So everything in the deep ocean, for the most part, relies upon the sinking of, you know, carbon in the form of, you know, dead organisms and feces and a whole variety of other fun things um, in uh, into the deep sea. And it actually sort of falls on the deep sea floor like snow, a very light snow. Oh. And so that's what most animals exist on, but it's not a very much and it's pretty poor quality by the time that it gets there. And so that actually leads to this sort of reduction in size, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. It's you have uh, snails that are small in shallow water actually get bigger in the deep ocean, and um, big snails in shallow water actually get smaller in the deep ocean. So there's like this convergence on this kind of medium Goldilocks size. And the reason we think that that is is because if you're a big snail, you it's hard to survive in the deep sea because you don't. Uh, there's just simply not enough food to support your size. But if you're a small snail, it's actually also pretty hard because if you're a small snail, you can't search a very big area for food. And so there's some selection to be this kind of medium size. And then likewise, you know, the more fat you can store, i.e. the bigger you are, the more fat reserves you have and the better starvation resistance you have. So if, if you're a small snail, not only do you not have a very big, you can't search a very big area for food, but you can't even store food very well. And so it kind of selects for this kind of medium perfect size. That's neat. We we had on uh, Stephen Jones uh, a few years ago to talk about hybrids, and he talked about uh, the the sort of brutal sex life of uh, slugs with their hermaphrodite uh, sexual selection, and and uh, it was. So I've just been fascinated by uh, snails and slugs since that conversation. It's been really interesting. But I guess we should move on to megalodons. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Craig's saying he's got a fascination with big things. They don't get any bigger than the megalodon, do they? No, I mean, megalodon definitely is the biggest of sharks. The maximum length we think they got is probably about 59 feet or around 18 meters I mean, whale sharks can get up to that size uh, almost. They're peaking out at about the same size. But in terms of, a, you know, an actual flesh-eating <laughs> shark, you can't get much bigger than megalodon. So can you tell us a little bit about it? So what did it eat? Where was it found? Just some basic info on it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it was definitely a carnivore, much like a great whites are. So, you know, it's there are some fossils. Um, you know, it's it's hard to sort of know exactly what megalodon ate. And we sort of infer it a bit, knowing what sort of modern sharks eat. But there are a few fossils of whale bones that have megalodon tooth slashes and bites in them. So that would have seemed to suggest that they were trying to take, uh, you know, whales and and prey potentially even bigger than themselves. Um, in terms of where they were found, they were they had a pretty sort of global distribution across the planet. Um, one of the interesting things about megalodon is probably counter to belief they are not like these monsters lurking in the deepest, coldest parts of the ocean. They actually occurred in 
sort of warm tropical settings. Yeah, this was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the dates, but uh, what, 20 million years ago, something like that? The last known teeth, I believe, are about are known from about 2.6 million years ago. Okay. But, the, but we have teeth dating from about 23 to 2.6 million years ago. But the world was quite different then, not just in climate, but the continents have moved around quite a bit, or have moved since then. So Considerably. But, you know, these guys were sort of big tropical sharks. Yeah. And when we say big, I mean, what my little you know, bit of reading is that the even the babies were bigger than great whites. Is that, I mean, obviously they would have been smaller at some point, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even the, you know, even the, even, you know, juveniles of, of Megalodon were likely to be, you know, about the size of a great white. That's amazing. Right, so oh, well. how do we know they're extinct? I guess, well, let's, let's start with that. Well, there's sort of several different lines of evidence. I mean, one, so let's talk about how we know about Megalodon in the first place. Well, the primary way we know about Megalodon is from teeth. You know, we have lots and lots of Megalodon teeth, again, from this period of time from about 23 million to about 2.6 million years ago. And then after that, zip, no Megalodon teeth after about 2.6 million years. So from that time to this time, there's no Megalodon teeth. And what you need to know about sharks is that they repeatedly shed and replace their teeth. And so, I mean, if you go out to the shore and sort of go beachcombing, you can often find shark teeth of, of the, you know, of the sharks that are off of the coast. But, but there's nothing there. And the other ways we know about megalodons through, um, well, fossilized poo um, that we think came from megalodon. And there's a few sort of vertebrae columns. Um, and like I said, the, the whale bones that we have that likely have megalodon tooth slashes in them, there's... None of those sort of things exists after 2.6 million years. There's, so there, we don't have any positive evidence that there's them not only in the fossil record after or before, more recent than 2.6 million years, but you don't go to the beach now and find modern megalodon teeth just kind of washing ashore, which there would be. That's one reason. Yeah. Of course, I think the other reason is they occurred everywhere. Like they they had a global sort of tropical distribution. They occurred in shallow water. It would be, we would have seen them by now. I mean, when we discover new species, you know, which happens all the time, um, we discover them because, you know, probably one or, you know, a handful of different reasons. One is that they only occur in a single sort of very specific place that's rare, or maybe they occur, but there, there's only a few of them left or a few of them, you know, in the world, or they exist in sort of some unexplored area or some sort of combination of those three. You know, if you take like the Yeti crab, for example, they only occur at hydrothermal vents and those, all of the hydrothermal vents haven't been completely explored. So, which is why we didn't know about Yeti crabs until about a decade ago. Um, or the coelacanth only occurs in a few specific localities off of South Africa and Indonesia, and it's in deep caves, which are rarely explored. So the fact that we didn't know about coelacanths for a very long time, you know, is, but megalodons aren't, you know, they're not elusive. They probably weren't elusive. I mean, they were <laughs> these massive <laughs> bus-sized sharks swimming around in tropical shallow water. And as much as, to be honest with you, as much as we, as much as a commercial fishing operations occur globally, you know, one of them would have been caught in a net by now. I, I have to say, you're hitting like every cryptozoology uh, drinking game here. You got we've hit the yeti <laughs> with the yeti crab, and we've hit the giant squid and the coelacanth. This is awesome. I, I'm so, trying to hit all the. I don't know if you have to with cryptids. I'm trying to hit them all. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, speaking of the teeth, how big were its teeth? The biggest, I mean, you know, I could give you centimeters or sort of that sort of thing to tell. But I think the biggest way, the best way to visualize them is probably about the size of a dinner plate. Oh, God. <laughs> That's frightening. Yeah, yeah, quite substantial. And then they had dozens of teeth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. More than Different one. sets of teeth, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've seen that famous uh, recreation of the megalodon jaw with the guy sitting in it from the early 1900s. And uh, and one of my friends has a megalodon. Uh, he has actually a shark tooth display, and uh, his top row is a nice little set of megalodon teeth, and they're stunning. 
Imagine yeah. finding one of those on the beach. Yeah. They're just beautiful. Yeah, there's quite a few places like, you know, there's a there's a couple of nice sites in North Carolina in the US where um where you can go find megalodon teeth. I mean it it's not hard to find them, um, if you were willing to put in a little bit of the effort. Yeah, I think that's where he got his was in one of the Carolinas, so I assume that's the same place. Yeah. Uh, so quickly though, why do sharks shed their teeth? I mean, that's uh that's such a strange thing or t- to me, you know, as a terrestrial. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so they don't have to brush them regularly. Oh, oh, perfect. With it's a kind of a really nice adaptation for them. Uh, they they're predators, and so they're a little bit thinner than ours, and they rely upon them having sharp points. I mean, that's a fundamental part of a shark tooth, right? Is that it's sharp or serrated in many cases, and so you know those get worn down over time, and so having them consistently replaced. So that they're always able, you can imagine if you had a bunch of dull teeth in your mouth and you're coming up on a fish or a sea lion or something like that and you can't get a good grip on it, you know, that's not ideal. So having the system in which they're constantly replenished and always sharp and ready to go is, is kind of nature's answer. I wanted to know, we've talked about where they lived and, you know, how big they got. One of the questions that we found, like we were talking about plesiosaurs was, I didn't know that plesiosaurs gave life birth. They don't. They didn't crawl on the shore and lay eggs. I thought that was interesting. But I know sharks. Some do give life birth and some lay eggs. Do we know what megalodon did in that regards? That's a great question. I I don't know. I mean, that's a, you know. Actually, I don't know. And I mean, I think you're sort of hitting my limits of my. You no know, problem. I mean, yeah. I think. I think it should clarify maybe that I'm not a shark biologist. That's okay. Well, it, one of the things is I know that we, you, you, in order to know the answer, you you need some kind of evidence to either some eggs or a, a body with uh, some fossilized, you know, sharks inside. Right. Whatever, you know, so I, I that may not even exist. So it may just be still a question too. So you know, it wasn't until recently that we realized that whale shark can give life birth. Now, I don't know if you've seen baby whale sharks basically, but they're cute and adorable in the way that you think a baby whale shark might be. And so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not actually for sure with, you know, I mean, I think we can, we could probably infer from great whites that's probably a live, they were live birth, but um, yeah, I'm not sure if we actually know or not or how we would know. Monster dog. As a little editorial note, I did some research after this interview and couldn't find any definitive answer to the question of whether Megalodon was oviparous and laid eggs, or viviparous and gave live birth. The huge shark's similarity to great whites, which are viviparous, inclined some people to believe that Megalodons did the same. But until we find a fossil with baby shark embryos in the mother's body, or we find a clutch of eggs fossilized outside of a mother's body, or some other definitive proof of one answer or the other, the question's still out there waiting to be answered. Scientists have found fossil evidence of shark nursery, so we do know that they had areas designated for rearing pups. But there's much yet to be discovered about these giant monsters of the past, and I look forward to more discoveries about this amazing animal. Monster Talk. Yeah. Speaking of whale sharks, another Monster Talk callback. At the Atlanta Aquarium, we have a whale shark. And one of our guests that we've had on the show was uh, a guy named Chet Van Duzer, who did a uh, book about uh, sea monsters on uh, ancient maps. And I got to see him give a talk at the Atlanta Aquarium. So while he's talking, Behind him, through a glass aquarium wall, is a, a, whale, a whale shark swimming around. It was just amazing way to see a talk <laughs> about sea monsters and monsters. It was great. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, uh, Al Dove, who is the director of conservation and research at the George Aquarium, is um, does a, spends a lot of his time, you know, researching whale shark, especially whale shark aggregations in the wild. And so, for a few years in a row, we were collaborating on. Uh, there's an aggregation of whale sharks off of Cancun. Um, you know, of you know, we're talking like a few hundred within a few miles squared. It's it's very impressive, and they're all over the place. You can sort of get in and snorkel with them, and um, and so one of the things we were trying to figure out was like, well, how do we get accurate estimates of of whale sharks in the wild? You know, it's not like you can swim up to them and have them hold still while you pull out a tape measure, and so. We, 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 you know, we worked for a couple of years in a row to try to come up with a really good method. Um, 
And basically the way that works is what we, what you can do is you actually can take, because even when you're underwater, you can't take a photograph with a whole whale shark in it and be close enough to be able to sort of identify the whale shark. Wow. Um, and so, and you sort of, a standard sort of photo you take of a whale shark is of its side right behind the last gill and right by, in front of the dorsal fin in that region because the spot patterns on the side of a whale shark you can actually use to identify individuals like fingerprints. And so what we figured out is you could actually shine a couple of laser dots um, that are mounted to the sides of a camera onto the side of the whale shark. And if you know what the distance between those two laser dots are, then you know, then you sort of can standardize everything to that, those two laser dots. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their heads. The, from a couple of studies and from a bunch of study, a uh, bunch of measurements taken on the whale sharks in the Georgia Aquarium, you know, we figured out that that distance between the last gill and the dorsal fin, if you take that as a linear measurement, that actually scales pretty well with the entire length of the shark. So we have like this really nice equation in which we like, we can just take a single picture and then scale up for, to try to get an estimate of how lar- how long the shark actually is. And I mean, that's kind of the, some, uh, some of the way how we know Megalodon is. So we know, oh, well, we have a relationship, a mathematical relationship that sort of predicts how big a great white is based on its tooth size. And so if we assume that that relationship also holds for Megalodon, then we can, that's where we get these sort of estimates of length of, you know, near uh, 60 feet, you know, as an upper max. That's incredible. Um, But is is there still debate over how big it could be, or it's pretty much accepted that that's the... Well, I mean, there's always... There's gonna, there's always gonna be debate because you know we'll never be able to measure the total length of a megalodon, you know, unless we find a whole megalodon fossil, which would be (laughs) spectacular. But, um, you know, we'll never know exactly how much, you know, maybe the relationship between the size of the tooth in, you know, in other sharks, including the great white, with their total length is not the same relationship it would be for megalodon, and so we just we're kind of taking our best guess at it. This is funny. This is uh, kind of the same problem they have with another famous uh, cryptozoology topic, which is uh, Gigantopithecus, which is basically only known from its teeth in one jaw. And it's, uh, we, you know, it looks like an orangutan, so they kind of extrapolate based on the size that it's probably the same. But again, same problem without a, a skeleton. Uh, how can you really know? You, you, right. you know, it's probably right. But it's difficult to say, and, and we have to, yeah. We're in the ballpark, you know. I mean, it, I, w- I think if the relationship is fundamentally wrong, then, then Megalodon becomes interesting, not because of its size, but because it's a small shark with massive teeth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a bit cartoonish, right? <laughs> yeah, interesting yeah. visual. <laughs> so what about Megalodon itself? Did it have any known predators? Um, I... To be honest with you, I don't think we really know. I mean, you can envision, you know, I mean, this could be very typical of these large animals, you know, they don't get preyed upon when they're full size, but as juveniles, you know, everything attacks them in the ocean. Right, Uh, right. But uh, they're so big, it seems like the old, uh, what do they eat? Whatever they wanted. Where do they live? Wherever they wanted, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you think of like, you know, um, you know, like whale sharks, there's not many predators on, on whale sharks, uh, you know, they, but you know, when they're in the couple of foot range, you know, in terms of their total length and they everything's a predator to them. So, you know, or that probably the same, probably, uh, you know, there's this famous, uh, although geeky joke among, uh, people who study squids about, you know, the, the common sort of market squid, Lalago, which is what you make calamari on. It, you know, gets to be about a foot in length or so. And it's like, do you know what eats, you know, Lalago? And it's like, well, everything does, you know, birds, turtles, fish. You know, it's it's bad to be a squid about a foot in length, which is why you have the giant squid that's not a foot in length. Right. <laughs> so. so do we have any idea how long they lived? No, I don't think we do. I mean... Again, it's the same sort of – we can play these math games. So for for most 
animals that are currently alive, you know, and that are well studied, we have these relationships between body size and things like their growth rate, their lifespan, uh, even their density on the planet, a whole variety of things that you can do in those relationships. These equations that we use to predict based on the size of animal, the other things that they do, um, you know, they vary from group to group. So there's, you know, one line for maybe mammals and it could be even that there's one for carnivores versus herbivores um, within the mammals, you know, and there's another one for birds and for for flightless and, and you know, as well as migrating and non-migrating birds. And so, so we can use those to kind of infer. And I mean, we could put those we could probably predict based on the size of Megalodon, how old it gets based on what we know about other sharks, but you're kind of doing the double estimate thing. We're predicting from the tooth, from two size, what the upper limit, what the length is, and then taking that length and making another estimate about how long it lived. Sure. Sure. And we, you know, and every time you do that, you introduce a little bit of extra air into the calculation. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I, and I, I know this isn't your area of expertise, but I was curious about the oxygen requirements. I know that modern sharks, uh, or at least some of the sharks, have to swim all the time because of the way their gills are put together. And I was curious, if, like uh, a shark that big, would it have an issue with the oxygen levels in the oceans today, even if, you know, if it had survived? I wonder. I wonder. That's a really good question. I mean, you know, it's. I, I, you know, I mean, anything of that size has a huge oxygen requirement. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, the oxygen requirement of a shark is not as great as it would be if you were a mammal of the same size. But yeah, they, you know, the, it could be that they would be running up um, against against hard limits on the oxygen that was available in the water to them. That's uh, that. It's interesting to me. Uh, all the. Uh climate science um and they have these really interesting ways of finding out how the oxygen levels and carbon dioxide levels changed over over time through various deposits uh, whether it's ice or stone or you know just various ways they can tell i just find that so interesting you know how you can push these uh these data points out of various uh accretions or or, or other records so you know oxygen and food are two of the strongest drivers of body size um, you know, in terms of envi- things in the environment, you know, so we know, like, you know, there's a one point, you know, you had dragonflies, you know, 
when oxygen concentrations in the atmosphere were higher, you had these dragonflies, you know, the size of, I keep coming back to the size of a dinner plate, but it's a useful description. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> massive dragonflies and other massive insects. Oh, I know. Um, I know. It's fabulous. I mean, we, we <laughs> I've actually tried to find someone who wanted to talk about giant insects, and it's been difficult to track down the right person. But that is a topic I love because <laughs> one day. any museum where they have giant insect models, it's just like, oh, my God, I would love to have been there. And yet I wouldn't. I yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, think, I think you think that until, you know, you have like a two-foot wingspan dragonfly right. in your face. I just want one of those little yeah. rolling balls like in Jurassic world right so. <laughs> oh, you, you live in georgia you should know better than to want bigger insects exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do we know what caused the extinction of megalodons well <laughs> um no uh, there's a lot of i think there's a lot of really good debate on this uh there one of the hypotheses is that the oceans got colder got too cold for megalodon uh it could be availability of prey items. In fact, I think those are sort of the two running ones is that the the oceans weren't essentially producing enough of a food base for a massive sized carnivore like a megalodon. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and then I think, yeah, the others, I think of the running hypothesis, I think the other strongest one is that it just simply got too warm for them. Because mm-hmm. if you think about a warming, you know, and this goes back to this sort of oxygen idea, one of the big things is that when you warm up so one of the things that you have to worry about with a warming ocean is that, you know, that increases metabolism of animals. And so if megalodon is already at kind of a hard limit in terms of its oxygen need out of the ocean, and then you, for the same size megalodon, you increase the temperature so the metabolism goes up. You know, this idea, this feeds into this idea that you have that like, oh, if they're oxygen limited, then that's where this temperature aspect comes in is that it just increases their metabolism, which of course then, you know, makes it harder for them to find enough oxygen to support that. But also, you know, that, that requires an energy source in terms of carbon. So they have to produce more food. So it, it may, this temperature sort of food debate may not be one or the other. It may be both it's sort of a double hit on Megalodon. Yeah. There's a lot of interdependency in any of these ecosystems. That's really difficult to tell exactly what happened. But we know they disappeared. Do we, though? Well, that's, that's well. I, <laughs> according to the Discovery <laughs> Channel. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, we, we actually, one of the reasons I think a lot of our listeners wanted to talk about this was because of this strange uh, documentary slash mockumentary that came on the Discovery Channel about Megalodon being a potentially real animal that's still alive. And so... Uh, did, were, did you hear about that, or did you watch that? Or oh, oh yeah. So um, both the I think the two worst things that have happened to marine biology are Discovery Channel sort of doc mockumentaries on the megalodon proposing that it could still be around, um, or or that mermaids might still exist. <laughs> Another favorite um, of ours, <laughs> uh, uh, which of course. Uh, you know, uh, or mermaids exist at all, which are both, of course, ridiculous. Um, so, and we've spent, you know, both a lot of time, not just I, but other marine biologists and scientists and uh, biologists in general, have spent a lot of time online, whether it be on our blogs like Deep Sea News or, uh, you know, uh, Dr. David Schiffman's uh, Southern Fried Science um, or with Dr. Andrew Thaler, um, spent a lot of time sort of combating the, these kinds of beliefs um, and trying to point out, of course, that, you know, both of those had disclaimers that, you know, that they were not real documentaries. Um, the the video, the quote unquote video of Megalodon was actually a sleeper shark in the Discovery Channel um, video. So, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And it was funny, before none of those, I mean, in my entire career until those two, uh, shows came out, no one had ever once asked me if Megalodon still existed or mermaids were like a real thing. Um, and then after that, that's that's still now, even though it's been a few years, still seems to circle its ugly head. <sighs> you were saying a little while ago that uh, if they still existed, that we would have seen them again by now. 
But uh, it seems like there have been some sightings of the Megalodon. Have you heard of any claims of people believing they've seen it? Um, I haven't heard. Oh, I mean, there may be claims. Of <laughs> yeah, we get a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, it's almost, I'm a, with almost certainty, I can say that they've not seen Megalodon. <laughs> so. Yeah, the uh, I, I think they covered this on Monster Quest a while back. That would have been like 2008 or 2009. And, and they uh, uh, a lot of the sightings were apparently people seeing whale sharks and just not knowing what they were seeing. Sure. I mean, there's other big sharks yeah. in the ocean. And some of them, some of them even wash ashore. You know, some of them are, you know, I mean, a whale shark, obviously, Greenland sharks, you know, great whites. There's plenty of large sharks in the ocean that we don't have to sort of believe in the existence of a the continued existence of a prehistoric shark um to be to, you know to have cool sharks in our ocean and a lot of the mermaid sightings were actually uh sirens and uh no <laughs> <laughs> it's a common mistake <laughs> i think the, i think someone i someone purported a theory to me a few years ago that was that that probably most mermaid sightings were based on the dried carcasses of fish, like half-eaten fish or dried up stingrays and things along that line that take a kind of weird human form um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, anything that might be more believable. Yeah, or they, maybe they make those dried ones with, with Jenny Hanover's where they dry out the uh, rays and uh, cut them into look like faces and, and of course, there's the P.T. Barnum style Fiji mermaid, you know, mm-hmm. these right. gaffs. Um, there's a lot. People have alleged that manatees were behind the mermaids. Or, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we joke a lot about how I don't know how long you have to be at sea before you think a manatee's a hot lady with a fish bottom, but, you know. <laughs> as, I, as a former sailor. Many ships had daily rum rations too. That's right. So that's maybe, right. Well, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. mm-hmm. as a sailor, I know from my personal weeks, several several weeks before that starts to look great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a strange world. <laughs> so, did you actually watch the documentary or mockumentary? I don't even want to give it the credit of calling it a documentary. So, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen. I, no, I haven't. No, I've not seen it in its entirety. Um, I've seen bits and pieces and YouTube clips, but never seen the whole thing. Gotcha. You couldn't sit through it. <laughs> no, I did. I just decided not to torture myself like that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> We're just wondering if there was any science in the 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 mockumentary at all. If they got anything right, or if it was just all fabricated. Um. You know. I mean. I. This is hearsay again because I haven't seen it. But I mean, I know. I know a, a few people who work on sharks said that, you know, like, yeah, some of the basic ideas about Megalodon are, are okay. I mean, I think the problem is, is that no matter what truth they told in their discussion of Megalodon, the thing that m- people remember the most and have latched onto is that Megalodon still exists. And yes. so no matter what good information they give, it gets shrouded in all of this, all of these lies, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. Yeah. Sure. They're polluting the pool of information. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, in doing a great disjustice. I think you've covered one of our questions, which is, could they live today? I guess if they couldn't technically because they'd have to have parents. <laughs> and if there aren't any parents... <laughs> well, that's a good first step. <laughs> so, but, but, I mean, I could envision some sort of Jurassic Park scenario where, you know, some DNA extraction or I don't know. <laughs> it'd be tough, but uh yeah. Uh, but we the world's changed, I guess, and so uh, there's a lot of different species in the ocean. So you know, would they still be able to compete? Would would there be enough prey? Enough? You know, there, there's still this idea that like it's really hard to support a carnivore that size. You know, so there's a reason why you know carnivorous whales like sperm whale, the sperm whale, which is the largest of of the toothed whales is substantially smaller than the the largest of the baleen whales. When you're that size, it's hard enough to find enough food for you to be able to consume efficiently, you know. And I mean, of course, one of the way the baleen whales do it is they, you know, they feed on these krill-rich patches, you know, so they don't have to search for food. It's just basically, you know, a soup of 
they swim through a soup of it. Yeah. Um, Everyone's but dream. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the previews for this new action movie, The Meg? Oh, I'm so excited about it. Really? Okay. What, yeah, what, I mean, because it's clearly fiction, right? It does appear to be fiction, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, really it's, not, it's not counted as a documentary. Um, <laughs> um, no, I think it looks, you know, I'm always good for, I'm always up for a good, you know, uh, a sort of monster or, a, you know, a monster flick or a good, um, you know, the world is ending flick, you know, oh, like yeah, Volcano yeah. or Armageddon or something. Oh, yeah. My son loves the yeah. destruction flick. It doesn't really matter whether there's any science in it. Yeah, yeah, whether yeah, yeah. whether it's <laughs> geologic or biologic. I'm just as long as there's some explosions. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm right there with them. I don't want to act like I'm not. I mean, I'm sitting there eating the popcorn right next to them. So, yeah. So. <laughs> So can we ask you about modern sharks? Are they in any danger of extinction at all? Well, absolutely. I mean, most, uh, you know, quite a few, if not most of the shark species are, you know, are either threatened or near extinction. Um, you know, and that's both from commercial, commercial fishing for sharks to shark finning to habitat degradation, you know, from... Uh, pollution to overfishing of shark prey to warming oceans. I mean, you name it, the, the sort of stresses that and damage that humans have caused the ocean have sort of hit sharks from multiple sides. And so, you know, in these top, top predators, whether, you know, whether it be sharks or whether it be top predators, you know, like lions and tigers, uh, you know, are always are always probably one of the most um, at risk groups. And speaking of um, soup as well, aren't they? They're often caught for the to make shark fin soup. Yeah, in some air, in some countries, you know, there's it's considered apparently it's considered a delicacy. But my understanding of that whole process is that at the end, it doesn't taste much like a shark anyway. Um, so like stone soup, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like stone soup. <laughs> what? Yeah, you you, you mentioned shame. lion lion sharks and tiger sharks, but th- there's no bear sharks, though, right? <laughs> why, why is that? Um, yeah, <laughs> that seems like a hole. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real flaw in the system. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe they are. Maybe they're hanging around in the same part of the ocean where megalodons. Maybe. That's probably what's happening. What's mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. The, I predicted the Oz zone. Uh, we'll hear more about that uh, later. <laughs> so, do you want to uh, talk about your current research at all? Like, what are you what are you working on these days? So, uh, a lot of my work now focuses on not so much body size. You know, you sort of every researcher goes through these shifts um, in their research. Um, uh, the so a lot of my work looks at trying to understand the biodiversity of the deep oceans that occurs on the sea floor um, and why some regions of the deep oceans have lots of species and other regions have fewer species and why in general most of the deep sea, despite you know not having the food available to it or the complexity of a coral reef or a tropical rainforest, seemingly has you know lots and lots and lots of species you know, on par with a coral reef or a tropical rainforest. So a lot of what my lab does is doing is working on that kind of big question. Um, some of my, some of my group is working as well on, um, including myself, um, works on, uh, looking at how changes, changes in the climate. When we think about climate change, we think about temperature, we think about uh, parts of the ocean going anoxic or hypoxic, so lacking oxygen um, or acidifying or becoming polluted or overfished. But one of the things that happens through all of this is that we change the way that the oceans produce carbon and produce food. Um, And in fact, in most of the oceans, we're starting to see a decline in the overall productivity of the oceans. And so, or the overall amount of food that's available to the animals that live in that area. And so one of, one of the things that my group studies is what is the consequences, especially for marine invertebrates, 
of this sort of food limitation. Wow. So that sounds like a big data question. Are you like collecting samples? Yeah. So the kinds of work that we do in the lab go from sort of big data, you know, big data initiatives. Um, things that look sort of more like a bunch of geeks sitting around computers um, typing stuff in to, you know, we a lot of the deep sea work we do is at sea. So we'll spend a couple of weeks at sea with remote operated vehicles, you know, doing experiments or collecting samples. Um, you know, we have some, we have an ongoing funded project that um, is looking at the continued impacts of the deep water horizon oil spill on the deep uh, oceans of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, well, and then, you know, I'm always looped back into body size stuff. Uh, so just last week I was at a conference and this uh, group of scientists had sort of stumbled upon a relationship between um, how, what you feed on and how you feed and body size. And the group saw me at the conference like, Hey, Craig studies body size. He'll know about this. And so I got sort of brought into this group project, if you will, to sort of try to figure out if this is a general pattern and, and if it applies equally to things like mammals and birds as well as snails. Um, so, yeah. So despite, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things I don't think I can ever, I'll never leave the body size research alone simply because people keep bringing me new, interesting questions. Yeah, but I love that kind of collaboration. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I do too. Mm-hmm. I do too. I, I, so I was curious, from a data collection perspective, I mean, the ocean changes all the time. So how do you collect data about these these uh, these data points about the oxygen levels, the, the the types of food that are there, the acidity, all that stuff over a period of time? I mean, it seems like like if you're in deep water, collecting that data at the exact same spot has to be really difficult. You're absolutely right. I mean, we get snapshots and we try to we try to get as many snapshots as we possibly can of the conditions at that moment, but you know, when, but like you said, you know, we're limited, you know, so we went out for, we spent two weeks out in the Gulf of Mexico last year. We're, we're not going out this year at all. And then we'll go out in 2019. So, you know, you're really uncovering some big, some of the big sort of gaps of, of where our knowledge is. I've just been so interested in like the idea of having some kind of aquatic drones that could dive deep, get samples, and then come back up and report, and then dive deep, like but recharge, you know. And it's we like, did, yeah, there's there are some companies and some sort of oceanographic institutes that have have been doing that, you know. So if the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute has been doing that kind of work for you know probably the better part of a decade. But you know the text the text still has kinks in it, and it's still very expensive. Um, yeah, it's got to be massive. It's got to be inexpensive, and it's got to be safe for long-term use. There's a lot of problems, but I, I really want that to happen because there's so much data under there. I want to know myself for a lot of reasons. So, well, and there are so I mean, there are also these sort of un, what's called an underwater observation network, and so Canada has this Neptune network that's off of their um, west coast, and so you know, in which they have like multiple sites that are all cabled with power and ethernet. Ooh. And so you can sit on shore and like look at cameras at the sites and look at your experiments that are going on and, you know, get continuously get environmental data. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a right, very, right. very cool project. And, uh, I will talk your ear off. I got to stop. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Craig knows that your alter ego is Dr. Atlantis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very interested in this stuff. This is great. So thank you for what you do. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. So Craig, uh, we've just got one final question that we like to ask all of our guests. And uh, that is, what's your favorite monster? My favorite monster. Oh, man, I got to go. Oh, man, I have to pick just one, huh? Well, that's the idea. Oh, yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I guess. I guess. I mean, it's a bit. It's probably a bit predictable, given what I do. And uh, but I got to go with the kraken. Ooh, that's good. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, you know, with just just an obscenely large squid. Um, yeah, I, I, I've actually got a bet going right now with a squid guy, or well, a. Uh, uh, a guy who studies. That's a strange uh, statement. Well, we, the, it's, <laughs> we we talked to him about uh, uh, sea monsters and uh, the the sort of the the metrics of these things, and 
and we bet a bottle of Kraken rum uh, <laughs> so, about whether or not a, a giant squid of a certain size would be found. So uh, there's a bottle of rum. Uh, I'm hoping that it is found. I don't mind paying for the rum. So it's, it's good. I want there to be huge, huge squid down there. So yeah, there's probably not. I think we've capped up the upper limit of of giant squids. Well, if I get the rum, that's okay too. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to say to uh, to Craig as well, if you you have an interest in big things. So I'm in Colorado at the moment, but I'm as you can tell from Australia originally, and uh, an area that I used to live in for a while, Armadale. There's a, a town nearby called Tamworth, and there's an enormous golden guitar there that you should see. It's Tamworth. Tamworth is kind of the uh, country music capital of Australia, so kind of like Nashville for Australia. But it is a a massive guitar, so that's worth seeing. (laughs) Yeah, I. uh, They have this. There's this app for your phone called Roadside America. Uh huh. And it sort of brings up all these kind of weird attractions. And every time I go somewhere, I bring up that app to see if there's anything big in my vicinity that I can go take a picture with. Um, so <laughs> that's great yeah we have a giant peach and a giant peanut and uh yeah yeah <laughs> giant peach giant peach <laughs> not the one with james yeah, the giant peach it's a different one no no <laughs> not that one not to be confused with that we have a it's giant under, there's a little, too yeah, right. there's a little town in uh i'm sorry <laughs> no, it's just because they had a giant rocky the- chair <laughs> you mentioned giant rocky chair there was one of those up north of me and I got all my kids sitting in it and they were yelling, rock me, rock me. And I, I said, only if you call me Amadeus and, and, and my wife, <laughs> it was lost on them. <laughs> it was completely lost on them, but my wife broke up. It was great. Not she didn't break up with me, well, least, which would have probably been the right response. But anyway, it's not important. <laughs> I'm still, still interesting though. I mean, this, the, these big sculptures, I mean, why, why do people do this? Because it's not there. So. Because <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> because not everybody. I don't know. I, I guess there's just a lot of people like me, and everyone has a different outlet for this this obsession. Well, you know, yeah. I I turn into a research program, and some people build you know giant frying pans or giant balls of yarn. But also, <laughs> you can't see the world's smallest guitar from the road. So. No, no, I haven't done. I don't know why I'm fascinated with the biggest ones as opposed to the smallest things. That's right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know. I I, I like those roadside attractions and the the, uh, Guinness Book of World Records and the uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, you know, with the, the. you know, the entire Bible written on the back of a postage stamp and all this stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was a kid. They used to Guinness, the Guinness Book of Records used to come like as a paperback book every year. Yeah. Yeah. And I would I would obsess over that. Like just every page I would read. I'm probably the only I have apparently I was a very nerdy kid, too. And so um, I think you're talking so, a lot of our listeners are right here with you. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess. And so the the best thing happened to me, like a, a, probably about a month or so ago, I, 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 with uh, a handful of other people, um, including, I was speaking about um, Alistair Dove um, at the Georgia Aquarium and a few of my, a, a group of students at Duke when I was still there, um, we published this paper called Sizing Ocean Giants. And we went through... Uh, just a little less than 30 species in the ocean that were the biggest of the group. So what is the biggest, you know, uh, what is the biggest whale? How big does it get? What's the biggest shark? How big does the giant squid get? How big? And we tried for each one of these to collect all the known size data. And this includes things like giant clams and giant isopods. And um, we really like did a bit of historical digging. So when we found out, you know, like, uh, the good, the best example I can give is of the Australian trumpet snail, which is this massive, you know, snail. It's huge. You know, it's about it's about three feet in size or so. I never saw one of those. Yeah, they're they're just they're they're and the shells are gorgeous. Uh, and so we had a record estimate, um, but it wasn't. And then the same specimen was reported to have another length. And we tracked down the specimen to a museum in Houston and had somebody there measure it for us so we could confirm the length. And so we really poured a lot of time and effort into this. Anyway, so 
and all of this, this paper is actually publicly available and all of the data and stuff like that. We wanted to make it very open access to everybody. And um, so about a month ago, Guinness reached out to me and asked me a couple of questions about the paper and said that they were using my paper for a lot of their statistics a lot of their records and statistics because it was the best vetted data that they could find. Nice. And I was, and I was like, I had a total geek moment. Where I, I bet. Was just, <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, like I'm the guy behind Guinness now, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> can I, you know, I, I sort of invited myself to their headquarters in London, I, but I don't know what I'm even expecting. It's probably just like an office building with normal offices, but for some reason I'm expecting to see like exhibits of, yeah. you know, <laughs> Um, you know, like, no, here, not only do we collect records, but here are the largest things in the world and we have a vault of them. Um, <laughs> well, at least you should be able to get a drink, right? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I remembered one other, uh, giant object in Australia and in another rural town that's near Tamworth too, uh, the town's called Gyra and it's a giant sheep and every year they have a lamb and potato festival around this sheep. Wow, that is fantastic. What's it made of? But I think it's a just big concrete sheep. But I think what's interesting about it is that uh, Gyra, uh, Blake, you might have heard of Gyra before. I've heard of the poltergeist, uh, right? The Gyra ghost, infamous for the Gyra ghost. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. a poltergeist from the nineteen twenties. So yeah, huh. they, they've not only got the Gyra ghost, but they've got a giant sheep. <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. Well, I think that sounds like more than enough to to just sort of launch a trip. For the for the one thousand people living there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just for the sheer pleasure. Oh, oh. beautiful! <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good time to end this. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Craig. We really appreciate your thank time. Thank you so much, Craig. That was great. Oh, oh thank you so much. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed myself. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Craig McLean about the prehistoric monster shark known as Megalodon. Links to Craig's work and many other items of interest will be at the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like to know their views, you can get into a submersible deep-sea vehicle and slowly descend into the darkest depths of the Marianas Trench, where a single flaw in your ship's structure could cause an implosion that would flash-burn you to cinders as the air compressed around you, before then leaving your wet, ashy remains lost in the cold depths where sunlight cannot even penetrate. You You know what? It would be easier just to go to skeptic.com and subscribe there. You can get the paper version or the digital version of the magazine. I mean, if you don't want any adventure in your life. Hey, say, if you're in New York City, don't forget that the New England Conference on Science and Skepticism is coming up. Nexus will be July 12th through 15th, featuring James Randi, George Robb, Steve Novella, Natalia Reagan, and lots of other folks who I've worked with, admired, or worked with and admired at the same time for years. So check it out at nexus.org. That's N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G. If you're going to be in Frankfort, Kentucky this September, you can catch me speaking at the second annual CryptidCon on the weekend of September 9th and 10th. This will be at the Capitol Plaza Hotel in Frankfort, and you can get tickets at cryptidcon.com. They've got quite a lineup of cryptozoology and UFO guests this year, including Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot, Linda Godfrey of Dogman fame, Bob Gimlin, one half of the Patterson-Gimlin film team, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, and many more. And, of course, me, Blake Smith, host of Monster Talk, where I'll be talking about the Kelly Hopkinsville Kentucky Goblins right there in Kentucky. I hope to see you there. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. 
A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. You're going to need a bigger boat.